0: What is happening, my good people? How are we? How are we feeling? Everyone well? Have those Monday morning blues? Well, here to put some sunshine on your cloudy sports day is none other than J Reels, as this is the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, of course. this is your first time getting a chance to listen to what I have to say, I welcome you guys aboard. Thank you for downloading and listening to this upcoming podcast. And for those who have listened to me from episode one to 40 to now 48, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, January 14th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Quite a bit to touch on here as we'll go through the sports universe, whether it's the NBA with the Lakers and Celtics. Yeah, I'm going to touch on those two teams in particular as they're going through some uh, tough times, but in two totally different directions. I'll also get into all the hot stove stuff. Manny Machado actually has an offer from a Major League Baseball team, but is he going to accept? Is he waiting for the Yankees to swoop in on the last minute to see if he could uh, secure a deal with the Bombers? We'll touch a little bit on the college football championship. I know it's been a week since, but... You'll get my words on that. All the NFL coaching changes, including the surprise pick for the New York Jets, Adam Gase, which is very unpopular in this town. I'll touch on all that, but we'll have to recap the divisional round here to start us off. And let's face it, it was a dud of a weekend. I know you can look at yesterday's Eagle-Saint game, and there was some excitement there, and you kind of thought... In the last couple of minutes after Will Lutz misses that 52-yard field goal and Nick Foles has the ball and they're moving down the field and you're thinking to yourself, no way. Could this be another upset in the making? Could this be the Foles magic to take them on to the next round to play the Los Angeles Rams? Well, it wasn't meant to happen. But other than that, the weekend was a complete bomb. I mean, let's face it. When you look at the Saturday game with the Colts, who certainly were still in the bus or haven't probably gotten off the bus, Come to think of it, when they were down 14-0 and then 17-0, they couldn't even get a first down until late in that first half. And if it wasn't for a block punt for a touchdown, they certainly would have been out of this game. Or even the game Saturday night, which the Cowboys try to make it a game, but with the running game of C.J. Anderson and Todd Gurley, putting up 275 yards on the ground, it was just too much for the Cowboy defense to handle. And then you had the first game yesterday between the Chargers and Patriots, and I was rooting for the Chargers big time, but boy. Talk about a team that did not get off the bus. I don't even think they got off the plane. So you had all that leading up to the Eagles-Saint game, which you got a game there, and just sad for Alshon Jeffrey, who had the ball go right through his hands, should have caught it, owned up to it at the postgame, which was good for him. But now that we have the stage set for the NFL Championship weekend coming up on Sunday, where we'll have the first game where the Rams will visit the New Orleans Saints, a rematch of their regular season high-scoring affair, I believe that was week 10. And then you'll have the Patriots and Chiefs follow that up in the nightcap, 640. And that was also a rematch from the regular season, although the game was in Kansas City. It was a Sunday night game, or I should say New England. That 43-40 wild game that took place in Foxborough. But what you come away from this weekend, and listen, we could break down all these games. What can we say about the first game with the Colts and Chiefs? They certainly were unable to move the ball. A bunch of three and outs to start the game. When they started to go no huddle, it was too little too late, and even then, when they had actually had a shot after getting a key turnover there deep in chief territory, what did they do? D4 gets a sack, recovers the fumble, and that was pretty much the game at 24-7. And the Colts, who certainly were a live dog coming into this game, I thought they were actually going to win the game considering what they did the week before. I understand Houston... They never show up in these games, it seems like, in the postseason unless they're playing the dregs. You know, the Raiders that one year when they had Connor Cook was the backup quarterback. That was the year Derek Carr had his leg broken. And the Colts certainly did not. uh, They just laid a dud. That's all there was to it. And the Chiefs, who finally were able to get that home win after the game that they suffered last year against the Titans when they were up 21-3 and they lost 22-21 in their building. Andy Reid could finally shake that one off. And exercised that demon for one week. And now he has the other demon that he needs to exercise. And that's Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. As we know, lost in the Super Bowl down in Jacksonville. That was Super Bowl 39. And then just a few years back in Foxborough in a divisional round. Where they lost to the Patriots 28-20, I believe. So he got that to look forward to. As far as the Saturday night game. Again, the Cowboys just got run out of the building literally. C.J. Anderson, where did this come from? A lot of people thought Todd Gurley, who looked healthy and obviously played very well, but nobody expected C.J. Anderson, who was signed off the street right around Christmas to put up the performance he did. You know, a lot of people are going to look at that 4th and 1 there at 23-15, which... Listen, the Cowboys went for it on 4th and 1 at midfield on their first drive, which led to the touchdown. So why wouldn't they go for it 4th and 1 then? So for those who are... Shaking your head and wondering what was Jason Garrett thinking. I mean, hey, if he went for it in the first quarter, why is he going to go for it there? And of course, they get stopped. They go back down the field, the Rams, that is, and pretty much ice the game with their touchdown there, CJ Anderson, 30 to 15. They did get a touchdown late, but of course, it was too little too late. And they had the key first down where Jared Goff, I think it was a third and 10, he ran for a first down, the longest run of his NFL career, if you could imagine. And the Cowboys. Exit stage right in the NFL postseason. And in the first game yesterday, the Chargers, I put all my chips in the middle of the table. I was thinking, no, this is going to be a different Charger team. If you listen to my podcast a couple weeks ago, previewing the whole playoff, I looked at the five seeds as true dark horses in each conference. The Seahawks, which although they scratched and clawed, but went out with a whimper there in Dallas. And then the Chargers winning in Baltimore, and I thought they had a real life shot of winning this game. But even after giving up the early touchdown, they came right back with a touchdown under Verone. You're thinking, okay, maybe this could be kind of a 15 round old classic heavyweight fight, and it was to be naught because then the Patriots took over. Sony Michelle here, Philip Dorset there, Julian Edelman here, and the Patriots just looked like the well oiled machine that they are at home. In the postseason where they pretty much never lose in fact the last time they lost at home was the AFC championship game against the Ravens when the Ravens went on to the Super Bowl and how many years ago was that so the Patriots who pretty much dinked and dunked their way to Kansas City were up 38-7 at one point 41-14 and then the score actually looked a lot closer than what it was at 41-28 and the Chargers who had a big year and a tough one at that because when you're 12-4 and four and you're a 5 seed, although it was better for them to go on the road because we know they don't really have a home field advantage, but for them to lose that game, and we all know the stats, Phillip Rivers is 0-8 against Tom Brady and Belichick. Never seems to beat them. And it showed again yesterday, even after all these years, so you certainly can't get over that hump. And the Patriots, who now move on, and with the Eagles sink game to cap it all off, 14-0. I understand the early interception. But then the Eagles scored on their first two possessions. You had the fake punt, which pretty much turned the, I'm not going to say the whole game around, but certainly the Saints' momentum. They had to do something. They got a spark. They were able to get a score from that drive. Of course, they got the field goal there late, which helped. And then they had that long drive. What was it, 16 play? It was 11 minutes, whatever it was. It was just a long drive, which led to the go-ahead score at 17-14. And then what it boils down to when you think about it was those few plays right before the Lutz field goal where the Saints had to call a timeout and then coming off the timeout, they couldn't call another timeout because obviously that would have been a penalty. So what happens, they had a quick snap. Alvin Kamara was sacked or not sacked, was tackled, thrown for a loss by Michael Bennett. They had to kick a 52-yard field goal. I understand a lot of people are going to look at that. Why was he choosing that spot to kick a field goal? Well, you're not going to punt there. And Lutz, who's not a bad field goal kicker, now, I know they showed the stat where he was 2 for 3 from 50 yards and he missed the one against the Steeler game, and Lord knows I remember that one well. But the Eagles were able to get the ball, starting to move down the field, and you're thinking, even after the big play to Zach Ertz and then the roughing the passer, you're saying to yourself, the Eagles are going to win this game. And I thought they are going to win. Now, the play that turned it all around the Alshon Jeffrey ball through his hands and then was picked off. To me, why did the Eagles and Doug Peterson rush to get that playoff before the two-minute warning? You know, you want to milk time considering that even if they scored a touchdown there, they're only up one point. All the Saints have to do is go 60 yards depending on field position. But let's just say if they got the ball in the 25, for argument's sake, all they need to do is go 40, 45 yards. At the time, I believe they had two timeouts. And there was no way that even at the two-minute warning, they would have the ball, let's just say, at that point, I think it was at the 30, what was it, 26-yard line? I can't recall off the top of my head. No, maybe it was at the 33. So if you had the ball at the 33-yard line, the Eagles still had one timeout. All they had to do was just let it run to the two-minute warning, kind of regroup, because at that point it was second and 10, and then just take your shot from there. Come up with a few plays, whatever it may be. You want to save your time out. You want to milk that clock down as far as you can and then try to get that ball in the end zone with as less time possible for Drew Brees to make a comeback for them to kick a game-winning field goal. And I was shocked there. Why did they rush that? To me, it was beyond belief. I could see if the ball was at their own 20 or their own 30. But here they were in St. Territory, getting deep into their territory and knowing that the clock was their friend, not their enemy. And then here they go. They rush to the play. And I get it that Jeffrey should have caught the ball, went right through his hands, and took ownership of it. But if you're an Eagle fan, to have that magic carpet ride just come crashing on that play was just, it's a tough pill to swallow. It was a game that you knew you could have won. Can't say you should have won. But knowing on that final drive, and especially with the week before what happened in Chicago, that was a certain. That was certainly a tough way to lose not only the game but your season coming off of what happened last year. And give the Saints credit, their defense certainly stepped up. After those 14 points, they shut down that offense pretty much the rest of the way. I thought it was going to be a blowout. I thought the Saints were just going to manhandle them, not to the extent of what you saw in the regular season, that 48-7 game, but considering that the Eagles were barely moving the ball on the Bears and with the Saints having the week off, that they would have came out flying to think they were the only team out of the four top two seeds that looked rusty that maybe even looked a little tight because for sure the Chiefs, Rams and definitely the Patriots came out guns a blazing and raring to go where the Saints certainly, it took them not only even a couple of drives but almost a half to get themselves back in this game and now your final four set and some early thoughts on that. When you look at this first game, Rams and Saints, of course, everybody's going to go back to that first game. You know, remember the Saints had a huge lead. I think it was 35-14 uh, at one point. And then the Rams came all the way back. But then the Saints took over, and they were able to pull out the game at home 45-35. And actually, that was the Rams' first loss of the year. I believe they were 9-0 and going into that game. And then the Saints, of course, took over. And then it was a matter of who was going to get the home field considering they had the tiebreaker. And sure enough, as we now know, and known for quite some time, that the Saints were able to secure the home field and that's why they're hosting the game come Sunday at 3 o'clock. couple things on this. One, if you're a Ram fan, you cannot, and I repeat, cannot expect C.J. Anderson to do exactly what he did this time around. You'd expect out of Gurley, make some plays, move the chains, et cetera. But for them that get that two-headed monster in effect, and Gurley, who down the stretch certainly wasn't 100%, looked 100% here, and to have a guy like C.J. Anderson is certainly a capable backup. But that's one thing that I look at this game, and I could certainly see, uh-uh, that's not going to happen again. So this is going to be a lot on Gurley, a lot on Goff for this Ram offense to put those points on the board because you would expect the Saints to do the same. The one guy I'm going to spotlight here, and he's been all pro. The guy's been worth every penny since he's been there, but this is the game right here that I need to see and underline a one Aaron Donald to step up and make his case known for the best defensive player in the NFL. He was pretty much invisible in the game on Saturday night. Didn't really do much. Only had a couple of tackles. Did have one thrown for loss, but again, didn't really have his fingerprints on this game. Well, guess what? He's going to need to wreck this game in order for the Rams to get to Atlanta to play in the Super Bowl. And I want to see it. I got nothing against Aaron Donald. We all know that he's been a dominant player in this league. But like I said with J.J. Watt, you could get all the sacks against the Jacksonvilles of the world. You can get all the sacks against these bad teams. Just look at the Rams. Hey, you could sack, you know, go and sack Josh Rosen 20 times and go ahead and sack Garoppolo's and the Nick Mullins of the world. Uh Uh-uh. Let me see the impact here. And not to say he has to have sacks. Sacks definitely help. But let me see some pressures. Let me see a bunch of thrown for losses. Let me see the downhill number 99 just getting into the St. backfield time after time after time. And if they end up losing a game, then you know what? You just put your hands up and say, hey, give credit to the Saints." and for what they were able to do, but Aaron Donald left everything out there. I do not want it to be a thing where I come back next Monday and this man was not a factor in this game, and of course the Saints went on and have gone to the Super Bowl. To me, it would be inexcusable. So I'm putting it on him and his shoulders right now because in the immortal words, and I've said this time and time again, Walt Clyde Frazier, the great Nick, one of the great point guards of all time, says it best. You make your name in the regular season, and your fame in the postseason. Well, Aaron Donald, we know you've made your name in the regular season three or four years over. Now it's time to make your fame right here. And this is as big as a spot you're going to get besides the Super Bowl. But you know what? In order to get there, you're going to have to show up here. So to me, spotlight's on him. And I don't see the Saints being rusty the way they came out of the gate yesterday. I could see that being... Dodging somewhat of a bullet, exhaling a little bit, and now that they got into the swing of things, and knowing that they got this game in their building, I think it's going to be not easy pickings, it's not going to be a coast job by any stretch, because the Rams are certainly a threat, but how I look at this game, I could just see the Saints playing downhill, I know they're going to probably, as they always do, a lot of dinkin' dunks, they do stretch the field at times with Michael Thomas, of course, but it, my thing is is that they want to try to take advantage of their backs, stretch the field a bit. Akeem Tlaib, as we all know, has been coming back from an injury. Marcus Peters is not at the best year, and I'm sure they're going to attack downfield. But to me, if they're able to just dominate that line of scrimmage and do what they can to the Aaron Donalds and the Dama Suze of the world, uh, I, there's no way that I could see this team losing at home considering how great they play in their building, on that surface, with those weapons, I see thirty-four twenty-three written all over it. Can the Rams win? Oh, absolutely. By any stretch. But to me, I think it's going to be a lot on Jared Goff, which Goff is capable of stepping up to the task. And also, as I mentioned, Aaron Donald. But is that going to be enough? Is there going to be another guy, an unsung guy, on that offense or on that defense that's going to step up? Obviously, we have to wait and see. But I just like the Saints in this game. I think in their building and the way they play on that surface, it's just going to be a toll order for the Rams to deal with. As far as the AFC Championship game is concerned, I look at it this way. We know that the Patriots have had their woes on the road, 3-5. and five. They haven't won a... An AFC Championship game on the road since 2004. Since then, they've lost in 06 in Indianapolis when they were up 21-3, if you remember. And then they lost to two games in Denver in recent memory back when, what was that, Super Bowl 48 and 50. So that's what, uh, 13 and 15 NFL seasons. So the Pats, the fast start that they got off to yesterday, I can't see that happening this time around. You know, it's weird when these certain trends happen, when a team gets off to a slow start and you think, oh, well, I think the Rams could, you see what the Eagles had done in that first half, I think the Rams could do the same thing, and the next thing you know, they're out of the gate 14-0. Well, with the Pats yesterday and what they did to the Chargers, I can't see that happening again to the Chiefs. And mind you, the Chiefs' defense, as we all know, certainly aren't going to confuse you with the Monsters of the Midway, certainly not going to confuse you with the 2000 Ravens, none of that. But for whatever the reason, I could see with the weather, early report says that it could actually be in the teens, and not that it's going to factor in on the Pats, we all know they're a cold weather team, so that's certainly not going to bother them in the least. But with the Patriots knowing that they've had those woes on the road, Sony Michelle had a monster game yesterday, can you see that happening again? I think not, even against that chief defense. But with Brady and Belichick, though, it it is tough to overcome and to think that's a streak that needs to be snapped, as well as the Andy Reid curse that he's trying to exercise, a little one at that, trying to finally get over the hump and beat Brady and Belichick in a big spot. And Andy Reid does scare you a little bit. I mean, let's face it. Reid is a coach, as we've seen time and time again, that in these big spots, he takes forever to you know, have his team march down the field to score a touchdown. There's no sense of urgency. I think, and even with Mahomes, think about this. Now, Patrick Mahomes has scored 31 points and didn't throw a touchdown. I think Mahomes is going to cause fits against that Pat defense, as we all know that Pat defense is certainly, again, you know, it's not your daddy's Patriot team where Teddy Bruschi, Richard Seymour, and the like I hope both of these games are good. I think this game could be very entertaining. I wouldn't be surprised if this game is even more high-scoring than the St. Ram game. I don't think it will because you have the elements you're going to deal with. We all know Damian Williams, who had a monster game too. Is he going to have that same type of output? What did he rush, 25 for 129 or whatever it was in that game against the Colts? Can he say a repeat performance of that? Nah. I think if this is going to be a game that's all going to be on the arms of Pat Mahomes and Tom Brady. And as much as I hate to say it, I'm rooting for the Chiefs big time. Somehow, someway, I could see a turnover. I'm sure the Patriots are going to hear all week that they've been awful on the road the whole year. And they haven't won a big game on the road. Remember, they lost in Pittsburgh. They lost that game in Miami, that miracle touchdown there to end that uh, game. I could see the Pats eking out a 28-26 type game. And Mahomes, listen, the moment wasn't big for him come Saturday against the Colts, but now it's the Patriots. And I get that the Chiefs are due to finally get to a Super Bowl. They haven't been there in almost 50 years. In fact, this is the first time they're hosting an AFC Championship game at home, in that building, Arrowhead, with all the mystique, the noise, the sea of red, everything. They have not hosted an AFC title game, or even been to an AFC title game since 1994. So it's been 25 years, the 93 season, when they lost in Buffalo. And now it's all right in front of them. Do I think the Chiefs could win? Absolutely. But again, how could you bet against Brady and Belichick and knowing that this team is going to hear it all week? And even Brady heard in the press conference. Oh, we suck. You know, we're not that good. Blah, blah, blah. And then, what's going to happen? They're going to hang around the game where maybe they probably had no business hanging around. And before you know it, there's going to be a fumble. There's going to be an interception. There's going to be something late in the game. And then the Patriots just go down the field and somehow, some way, eke out a close game. And then they're off to the Super Bowl again, which would be their ninth Super Bowl in this Belichick era. I mean, geez. Well, we, we can talk about that next week, but I just see... That unfolding. So those are going to be my picks, and now before the start of the playoffs, I picked New England and New Orleans, so I got to stick with it. Although I'm going to be rooting hard for Kansas City. And if your fourth Super Bowl matchups, listen, CBS is going to have the game, and it can't go wrong with either matchup. I think if they guns to the head, I think they would want to get New Orleans and New England. Because you have Breeze, you have Brady. I understand everybody's sick of the Patriots. They probably want to see Mahomes there. The young gun maybe versus the old gun with Breeze. But I I don't think you could go wrong with any of these matchups. Rams-Patriots would be great. Rams-Chiefs, everybody's going to look to that Monday night game, 54-51. And even if you get Chiefs and Saints, that'll still be a great matchup. You know, Unlike last year where everybody was shaking in their boots hoping that it wouldn't be Jacksonville, Philadelphia. Could you imagine? Or Jacksonville, Minnesota. Now, that would have been a little bit intriguing because the game was in U.S. Bank Stadium in Minnesota. But yeah, Philly-Jacksonville Super Bowl certainly, whew, that would have been brutal. But this year you can't go wrong with any of these. But I would think that they would want to see Brady versus Breeze here in Super Bowl 53. And that would be my guess. I think they would want to see that. But no matter how you slice it, no matter any of those four matchups, whoever it's going to be, it's going to be a big game. Everybody's going to watch. And these are by far the best four teams in the league that are going there. Now, it would have been nice if the Chargers would have gotten there, or the Colts. It certainly would have been great stories or whatever. But these are the four best teams. And let's see what happens. We'll be watching starting Sunday, 3 o'clock. Now, to go through some of these uh, NFL coaching changes that have taken place and the big one here in New York, and we talked about it the last couple of weeks, the Jets couldn't get this one wrong. They knew that this was a very important time in their franchise, knowing that they had their quarterback in place, they have the third pick in the draft, they have $100 million under the cap, that they needed to get this right with the coach. I said this last week. I thought McCarthy, the former Packer coach, not to say he wasn't going to be a good fit, I just thought that they were better off going with a younger coach Because who knows how low McCarthy, and he's a young guy, he's 55 years old. But you want to have a guy that's going to be here for a decade plus. I'm sure if you're Chris Johnson, Woody Johnson, etc., you don't want to have another guy that's going to be here for four years. Well, who knows? They probably hired a guy that could probably tap out at three, maybe four years, barring just an epic collapse this upcoming season by hiring a former Dolphin coach, Adam Gase. And we get the endorsements from Peyton Manning and... You know, a lot of these other people who certainly had the pom-poms out for him. Now, can Gase, who takes no credit for Peyton Manning whatsoever. I understand they had that record-setting season, the 55 touchdowns. No, no, no. Please. If you're going to think that Adam Gase was part of Peyton Manning's success, you got to be off your rocker. But with the hiring, which I don't like, by the way, I like it that he's a young coach and he's an offensive mind, and I – Was hoping that the Jets would take that tact. Whether it be Cliff Kingsbury. I know Bruce Arians was older. We'll get to him a little bit. And we know McCarthy, again, not as old as Arians. But I thought a young guy with someone that he could bond with the quarterback and be here for 8 to 10 years was imperative. I didn't think it was going to be Adam Gase. And Gase, who certainly rubbed the owner the wrong way, and is a guy that certainly has a lot of hubris and even a little bit of arrogance. Certainly things did not pan out down in Miami the way they did, especially after his first year when he went 10-6 and six and made it to the postseason. So now you bring him to the mix, and who knows, they actually may also have a defensive coordinator in Greg Williams, which I get he's, he has a lot of baggage. Was a head coach and a coordinator in a million places and was part of the whole Bounty Gate in New Orleans, but certainly would bring a lot of fire. And obviously a lot of attitude to that defense helmed by Jamal Adams. But to me, this hire right here, you got to wonder whether or not Gase, who has had his run-ins with the media a little bit down there and can be a little cranky, how's that going to work up here? As we all know, it's not. And you kind of wonder, on a day-in, day-out basis, if this team brings in the personnel that it's expected to bring in, especially in the offensive positions, maybe draft a pass rusher. And right now I don't have the draft boards in front of me, but you would think that if they're not going to go O-line, you would think they're going to have to get somebody to rush the passer because the Jets do not have that. And if you're bringing in Greg Williams, you know that he's going to want to have somebody that's going to be able to put some pressure on the quarterback. Who knows how this is going to turn out. Now, again, Right, could Adam Gaze be the guy that's going to turn this franchise around? You think not. But you got to give this guy a shot despite the fact that this has been panned by a million Jet fans from here to the end of Long Island. And again, I'm not crazy about the hire. Do I like the hire? All I can say is I'm not crazy about it. But we got to wait and see how Gaze is going to be able to Look to see what kind of roster he has. How he's able to turn this franchise around. And we all know the depths of how this franchise is. There was as low as it possibly can be these last few years. And they haven't made the playoffs in eight years. Is this going to be the guy to turn it around? We'll have to see. Certainly wasn't the most sexiest pick in the world. But if he's the guy that's going to be able to have Sam Darnold and his back pocket and Darnold's going to believe in him and his system, then you can only hope that's going to work. And if you're a Jet fan right now, I know you're not happy. I know you're probably thinking, oh, God, why this guy? And rightfully so, you have every right. Me as a Steel fan, of course, it's easy for me to talk about it. Because if I was a Jet fan, I'd be probably sick. Knowing that the team is on its way up, and we all know in this league, a lot of it is about the head coach. And we saw how it flamed out down in Miami. And now he comes to the bright lights in big city of New York. And it's going to be a tall task and an uphill battle for this guy. So we shall certainly stay tuned. I know his press conferences later today. And uh, it should be fascinating, to say the least, how the Adam Gaze experiment will go here in New York. Some other coaching moves. I mentioned Bruce Arians earlier. He goes to Tampa Bay where Todd Bowles, who's going to follow him there as a defensive coordinator, I think that's a good spot for Arians. He's a big fan of J- Jameis Winston. If there's anybody who could probably turn Winston's career around, could be Bruce Arians. So good for him. And even good for Todd Bowles for that matter because we know that he was a very good defensive coordinator in Arizona, but he's probably one of those guys that's just that, defensive coordinator. So I'm sure he'll be able to recitate, or resuscitate excuse me, his career there as a defensive coach. Denver signs another defensive coach Vic Fangio from the Bears. The Browns hold put with Freddie Kitchens, the offensive coordinator who now is your head coach, he and Baker Mayfield of course were tight and that was a move that I'm sure that they had to make knowing that they didn't want to upset their number 1 overall pick of last year. The Packers hire Matt LaFleur, the OC, formerly OC of the Tennessee Titans. Cliff Kingsbury goes to Arizona, where a lot of people think that that could be a disaster, knowing that he was a Texas Tech. I understand he grew Mahomes, but had a losing record there, was going to USC to be their offensive coordinator, and then now he's the head coach of Arizona. So let's see what he does with a guy like Josh Rosen. And then your only two final coaching destinations that have not been filled. Well, one may close to be being filled. There's been reports that the linebacker coach of the Patriots, Brian Flores, is going to be the next Dolphin coach, which I wonder how that goes over with Coach Belichick. And the reason why I say that is because, now we know his disdain for the Jets, Belichick that is, and for Mangini, when he left as defensive coordinator to go to the Jets, we all know that that relationship was certainly dead and buried. And despite the fact that it's not the Jets, but he's still in the division, you wonder how that's going to shape up here In the days and weeks to come, especially if he does get hired and it becomes official and the Pats continue to go deep into this postseason. Now, listen, of course, all focus is on the team right now, but I don't know, it's a little stewing deep down inside with Belichick knowing that, oh, he's going to be in the division. I understand it's not the Jets, and we all know how his displeasure for gangrene is, but ah, just something to keep in the back of the head. And then the only head coaching position that has not been filled would be the Bengals. So, who knows? What I find interesting is that Eric Bieniemy, who's been a hot target out there as far as being a head coach is concerned, and Bieniemy was a former Bengal, I wouldn't be surprised if they would try to reach out to him. And I, You haven't heard any reports from the Bengals after Marvin Lewis has been gone. And the Bengals would be silly and just downright stupid if they were to hire Hugh Jackson as a coach. I mean... I understand he was part of their offensive coaching group toward the end of this year and even in the past, but they, they cannot do that. We all know that they're notoriously cheap. They don't want to pay for a coach. But you know what? Just go out and get the enemy in here. See what you could do. You got weapons on offense. Dalton will be 100%. We, you know, we have A.J. Green. You have a good secondary receiver in Tyler Boyd, Giovanni Bernard. Is your third down Darren Sproles type back? I mean, they do have a good team on paper. So you know what? Just tweak the offense. Just make sure that whatever it is that the enemy could do as a head coach, and that's it. Just roll with it. So that's pretty much your thoughts on the NFL and everything that's going on with the coaching carousel as most of the positions have been filled here throughout the National Football League. And I'll close out the football segment with the College National the National Championship game from last week. And boy was I shocked. As fast and furious as those first few minutes of that game was. The pick six, Alabama bouncing back. Then Clemson throws their right. Then another haymaker from Alabama, although they missed the extra point. And then after that, it was all Clemson. Trevor Lawrence was going to be the darling of college football. Now in this offseason, and you're going to hear a lot about him and Tua next year for the Heisman Trophy. True freshman and Trevor Lawrence with the long hair and the comparisons to Jesus and his neck of the woods. I mean, it was just total annihilation, and it was just good to see because I'm just sick of Alabama. Sick of them. Just like I'm sure a lot of people are sick of the Patriots, a lot of people are sick of looking at Nick Saban's doggone face. And boy, did they get smacked right in the teeth. The fake field goal, which was spotted miles away, which was just... I understand what he's trying to do, but yeah, he could have had a better play call than that one because that was just atrocious. And you would think this time next year, you're going to see Alabama and Clemson again meet up for... Could it be the fourth time in five years? It's quite possible because both teams are going to be loaded. We know Alabama is an institution and a football factory, and Clemson is starting to become that as well. And... Early indications are you'll see Clemson. A lot of people have them back, ranked number one in the nation. And look, we're not even a week out from the title game and everybody's talking about this uh, upcoming college football season, at least in that regard. So kudos to them, kudos to Dabble Sweeney on that. And then not only that, one other NFL note I just want to close out on before we get to some baseball stuff. The saga in Pittsburgh with Antonio Brown. And I listened to a couple of interviews from people who report with the team. And I know Art Rooney II came out and said that who knows if, or he, paraphrasing here, that he cannot see Antonio Brown on this team in 2019. Well, we know he has a $22 million salary coming. So he's going to take a tremendous cap hit. They can't release him because they got to eat $22 million of that. Now, if he gets traded, $21 million will be dead money to the cap. And I don't know who's going to end up taking the rest of that contract. Because remember, a lot of that guaranteed money was low. It was $19 million. So a lot of the rest of that money is going to be big-time money. And I'm sure the guarantee has already been paid off twofold. But I will say this. Considering everything that happened around this team this year, starting off with the Le'Veon Bell nonsense... And how a lot of the players grumbled about that situation. And a lot of the grumblings leading up to that final week of the season. And how Art Rooney II came out and says he's going to interview the leaders of this team. To see whether or not they're going to bring back Antonio Brown. Well if I'm Art Rooney. And I know it's going to be difficult considering the amount of money he's left on his contract. And he has this year and two other years after this. But I would look at his age. And the production that he is had over the first over these last six years, which he's caught over hundred balls and obviously had four all pros, et cetera. And he's had a phenomenal career. I mean, you can't there's no way to knock it. Antonio Brown has been super productive on the field. But you know what? If I'm Art Rooney or Kevin Colbert or even Mike Tomlin, I think it's time to go. And people could look at me and say, Jay Reels, what are you crazy? What are you nice? He's Antonio Brown. Well he's going to be thirty one at the start of next season. Is he going to get any better? Probably not. Is he still going to be productive? I would think absolutely. What do you think? He's going to fall off a cliff? And we all know he works hard. And we all know that he's just been a dominant wide receiver in this league for the last half decade. But in this interview that I listened to, and just to give you a little tip, not that I'm plugging Peter King because everybody knows who Peter King is, if you go to the Peter King podcast, they interviewed, and I'm going to butcher a name, but if you just go to his last podcast, he had Derwin James was his first guest. He had, She had come out and reported that Ben Roethlisberger, although he's been the true soldier, oh, I need A.B., A.B. makes me, and blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't be the player he is. Well, guess what? It's the other way around. One of the reasons why A.B. is such a tough cover in the league is because he improvised a lot of his plays because he's a poor route runner. And listen, we've seen Antonio Brown perform, and there have been times, even in that game in Denver, Where it looked like the ball sailed on him, but A.B. didn't complete the route. And that was the beginning of where Ben probably got on Antonio Brown's case. Where you had a lot of this, if you want to call it, infighting over the last few weeks of the season. But to close on this and my thoughts, it's time to go. You know what? Le'Veon's not going to come back this year. And the Steelers will not put a franchise tag on him. You saw the production they got from running back this year. Especially with James Conner when he was healthy. And with wide receiver, the Steelers draft receivers left and right. Juju could be your feature guy. You have James Washington, you can hopefully get developed. Justin Hunter, the same. Eli Rogers is a decent slot guy. They know they need a better tight end. I know Vance McDonald and Jesse James, they show glimpses, but they're obviously they're, you know, nobody's gonna be shaking in their boots as far as the defensive game plan against them, but they have weapons. And with Brown getting older, and to me, Roethlisberger was able to have a very good career. Before Antonio Brown came into the picture, a la Santonio Holmes, Heinz Ward, Heath Miller, the same could follow suit if they were to let him go in this offseason or trade him. So, how I look at it, and you put all the antics aside and all the, the, the stuff that goes on with Antonio Brown, you know, he's just, I hate to say it, but he's just a front runner. Love him and everything and love what he's done. And I understand people say, oh, well, you know, we haven't won with him, then we don't need him. Well, to me, it's not just that. It's just that you don't have to deal with any of the antics anymore. And obviously with Le'Veon, you don't have to deal with that either. So you know what? Just try to not necessarily cut bait, but try to see if you can get the best deal out there. I hate to say it, would the Jets even bite on someone like that? I mean, they'd be nuts, I'd be honest. But you know what? They need stars. They need to have some skill position players that could certainly take their team to the next level. Why not trade them to the Jets? That's what happened... Back in 2011, when they traded San Antonio, they got a fifth rounder for him. So, chances are they're not going to get, they're probably going to get, a, with that contract, they would probably get a three for him, which I understand people would be like, what? That three? They should get a one for him. Well, jet, they're not going to get this year's one, that's for sure. So, anyway, just something to think about, Steelers fans. I feel as if it's time's up. This circus with Antonio Brown has to leave town because not to put it all on him this year because it wasn't but when you start the year off with the Levy on nonsense and then that's gone and you end the year with this you gotta take a pulse of these players and if these players feel like uh uh you know we love AB but it's time then guess what you gotta get rid of them and I'm all for that now some baseball thoughts here Manny Machado has a team but is he willing to sign on the dotted line there's been an offer by the Chicago White Sox eight years who knows what the money is It's probably, I can see it being 240, just if you do the math, 30 a year. Now, is he going to use that as leverage and go to the Yankees and say, hey, this is eight years of 240. I'm willing to take less years if you could give me the 240. Who knows? And I'm just throwing the 240 number out, out at you. I don't think that's a number at all. But you wonder, the camp of Manny Machado and in this climate, the way Major League Baseball is. Now, who knows what the Phillies are going to throw at them because the Phillies are also in the mix here too. But are you willing to risk whatever that money is for the sake of lever- leveraging with the Yankees, and even with the Phillies for that matter, knowing that, oh, I'm going to get more money when in essence, you may not get more money. Now, I understand you don't want to just jump on it and rest your laurels and say that's it. And we know that the White Sox have done enough this offseason season. Whether it's bringing in yonder Alonso, who's his brother-in-law, or John Jay, which has been an old friend of his, and that's not to say that that's those are automatics, as far as bringing in a player like Machado, but you got to wonder if the deal is on the table, and the Phillies are half-stepping, and the Yankees are kind of waffling back and forth, and they've made some moves to their roster this past week. Do you wonder whether or not Manny Machado is going to say, you know what, let me sign, and I'm a White Sox for the next eight years? If you ask me, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's Solely waiting to see on what the Yankees in Philadelphia are going to do now. And rightfully so. Why wouldn't he? Remember years ago, Carlos Beltran did that. When the Mets came with that offer, they were like, hey, can we go to the Yankees and see what they could pony up? And as we all know, the Yankees said, nah, we're good. And then he was a Met for six and a half years. So... With Machado, it's kind of a wait and see, and with Bryce Harper, he had a meeting with both the White Sox and Phillies in Las Vegas over the last few days, and we know the Nationals are still in the mix. Who knows where Bryce goes? You would think they got to sign soon because pitchers and catchers are now about a little more than four weeks away. These players, I'm sure they want to get their deal signed, sealed, and delivered. I get that they want to try to get the most money and the most years, et cetera, but I mean please. It's gonna to get to a point where the longer this thing drags on, and if somebody's gonna offer this amount, which is certainly gonna be astronomical, what's another 20 dollars? I understand to the player, it's hey, it's it's everything. Well, it's not as if they didn't make enough money leading up to this stage of their career. And who am I to say? But I get that, but at the same time, Right, the White Sox is saying, hey, take it or leave it. You would think, hey, let's go to the Yankees right away. Let's go to these teams, and within 48 hours, let's sign on a dotted line. Why drag this sucker out? As it was, Machado said that he was going to announce where he was going to go after the first of the year. Well, it's the 14th, and I get it after the first means it could be the f- Valentine's Day for all I know, but still. And as far as the Mets and Yankees, they're making some deals. The Mets bringing in Jed Lowry and the Yankees DJ LeMahieu which I both were very intriguing signings for the Mets how I looked at it was okay you bring in Lowry understands for a lot of versatility and he could be a good guy off your bench i mean you're not going to pay a guy 2 years 20 million to come off your bench but you got to wonder if you're going to bring in Lowry what does that mean for Todd Frazier because you got a second baseman in Cano you got a shortstop in Rosario where does that put not only Todd Frazier but even Jeff McNeil? I guess McNeil's going to start shacking flies in the outfield. Are they going to put Lowry at first base if the Peter Alonso doesn't come up with the team in mid-April, or if Dom Smith bombs? Or and I understand it adds provides depth, which is good in that front, and like I said, versatility, but. You know, how long before Jed Lowry starts maybe moaning and groaning, like, hey, I should be playing. Or the guy's batting 350 and it's the middle of May, but he's playing three times a week because he got to put McNeil in and McNeil's struggling, or whatever it is, or Todd Frazier, for that matter. And then the thing with LeMahieu and the Yankees, it's pretty much the same thing. LeMahieu's more, he's the second baseman. You're not putting Glaber to shortstop, are you? Or is LeMahieu going to play short? What are you going to do with that situation? I guess you're going to put Lemayhu at short. I I don't know. Or oh, you're going to put Lemayhu at first? What does that mean for Luke Voigt and Greg Bird? And I get it's an insurance policy for them because now we don't have to worry about Machado. We got a guy in Lemayhu two years who had productive years in Colorado despite it being Colorado. And we know his splits are a little bit more road dominant. But let's face it. That's another deal which makes you scratch your head a little bit because if you have Gleiber at second, and right, I understand you need a shortstop. Is Lemayhu? who's been a second baseman his whole career, is he going to be able to make that transition? Or are you going to tell Gliber, hey, play short? Where Gleiber was, for all intents and purposes, he was a shortstop. But now he's going to have to go to that side? Is he going to be comfortable, ready for that? Has he been preparing for that? You're not going to play him at third, you got to end Duhar. And could you imagine when the if and when the Yankees do sign Manny Machado, then what are you going to do with LeMahieu? He's pretty much going to be in the situ- same situation as Jed Lowry. So yeah, d- dubious signings, although good signings, because again, it pretty much kill, you know, knocks two coconuts with one stone. But when you have guys that are able to fill the position and you bring in another guy that's pretty much playing the same position, then what do you do? You know, It's not like a starting rotation where, hey, yeah, you can never have enough starting pitching. But here, I get you cannot have enough, enough depth, but at the same time, you kind of scratch your head and say, hmm, Jed Lowry, where are you going to play this guy? That was the first thing I thought of when they signed him. I said, he's going to play the outfield? The guy's been a second-base shortstop. He can play all over the infield, but, well, I don't know. Well, I do know, but the point of the matter is, is that there it was a signing that the Mets shrewd on Brody Van Wagenen's part, And at the same time, he was a former client of his, so that even made more sense. But at the same time, you just got to look at it and say, what are they doing? But still plenty of time between now and the start of spring training, so who knows how this is all going to shake down between uh, now and then. And lastly, on the NBA, you have a couple of the cornerstone franchises of the NBA that are going through a little turmoil, I should say. Well, maybe that's a little strong, but You'll get what I mean was I talk about both the Lakers and Celtics. Now, the Lakers, ever since Christmas night when they demolished the Golden State Warriors on national TV, they have not only gone three and seven since then, but they've lost to the Knicks as well as, last night, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And who do they have to follow up to come into their building tomorrow? The Bulls. So you have three of the worst teams in the league where twice in the last, I guess, seven to ten days or so have lost to another the Bulls coming in. Now, people are going to say, well, wait a minute, Jay Reels. They didn't have LeBron James. And I get that. But come on, the Knicks, the Cavs, and now the Bulls, they got to beat these teams. Even Luke Walton saying, wait a minute, something's going on here. We need to regroup. We need to somehow, some way, find a way to beat these teams because how is it that with all their young talent, even minus LeBron James, they still should be able to prevail against the dregs of the NBA? And with LeBron, he had suffered that groin injury last week. I mentioned that he was going to be back in about three games or so, and it doesn't look like he's going to be back anytime soon. And we all know injuries like that, uh, although it's not you know, a knee or it, it's one of those nagging injuries like the high ankle sprain in football or in this case the groin or hamstring. And obviously he must have did a number on it, as you remember, for those who have watched the game, where he said that the, you know, he felt the pop. Well, this sucker looks like it's taking a little bit longer to heal. Now, what does this mean for the Lakers in the long run? I'm sure they're going to be fine. Right now, they are the eighth seed in a Western Conference that is separated by like nine games, which is amazing when you think about it. Pretty much from top to bottom, minus Phoenix. You have all these teams that are jumbled up in the mix, especially for those bottom seeds. But again, you know, it's not as if. Uh, let me see if I can pull this up real quick. You know, it's not as if the 1 through 8, you know, are separated by 15 games and then you have the, the bottom, let's say, 2 or 3 seeds separated by 5 to 10 games. No, that is not the case. As I pull up the NBA standings, in the East is a little different. In the East you can see the balance there, although you have a pretty much a logjam there for those final few seeds, whether it's Charlotte, Orlando, Detroit, etc., out west between the top eight seeds, they're separated by seven games. And then let's just say from the Lakers down, there are one, two, three, four, five, six teams separated by three games from the eighth seed down. And then seeds one through seven are separated by five games. So that's how close the Western Conference is right now. So if you're the Lakers, even though you could say, ah, oh, they'll be fine once LeBron gets back, if he gets back, and I'm sure he'll probably be back sooner than later. And i will take a shot and make a run. But, hey, they go through a bad stretch or another bad stretch. They'll be on the outside looking in. And granted, none of those teams are going to be, you know, you're not going to have nightmares thinking about the Sacramento Kings or the Timberwolves or even the Mavericks for that matter. But at the same time, you certainly don't want to put yourself in a position where you're going to have to scramble, scratch, and claw just to get an 8 seed and then you can play Denver or Golden State in the first round of the playoffs. That's the Laker deal. Now, as far as the Celtics are concerned, you know, they've had these players only meetings. They've had a lot of these types of scenarios where they've had to rally the troops to the point where they lost in Miami on Thursday and then they lose to Orlando on Saturday to the point where Kyrie's still sitting in the locker room with his uniform on and everybody's dressed in on the bus to where Kyrie had to go to the media and said, hey, listen, we want to be a championship team. We, got, we want to be great. There's things that we're going to have to do and not want to do in order to get there. And this Kyrie Irving saying this. And he knows. He's been on championship teams, so he's well aware. And you kind of wonder if this team is rest on its laurels from what they did last year without Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward. But you know what that falls on? It falls on the coach. And the coach has to get this team rolling and going in the right direction and they've had their moments this year. You know they had an 8 game winning streak after they were 10 and 10 and we get that the Celtics we we know the talent and everything. But now what Stevens has to do and he's done it well in his first 5 years, but now in this pivotal year for this franchise. I mean think about it. They've come all the way back from that Pierce Garnett trade. They've gotten the draft picks that they brought into the building, they made the trade for Kyrie, signed Gordon Hayward Now you have all that in the mix. And I understand it's disrupted the chemistry of the team, players grumbling about minutes, et cetera. So now, and I said this weeks ago on the podcast, but now this is the time where he's going to have to step it up. He's going to have to say, okay, guys, halfway of the season is gone. We have the next half to go with. This is the rotation I'm going, whatever it may be. I understand he brought in Hayward a little bit too soon for the start to be a starter considering the injury he went through last year. But, of course, we know that's based on economics considering the amount of money they're giving him. You know, Horford has been out of the lineup early part of the season, and he you know he's the glue guy of that team. So you only hope that the Celtics somehow, someway, will find a way to regroup, because right now they're fifth in the Eastern Conference, and they'll play Philly in the first round. Philly's played well, although they've beaten Philly twice this year, both games at home court. So now if you're the Celtics and they're in Brooklyn tonight, and the Nets, of course, have played a lot better, and are in the Eastern Conference playoff mix, they need to turn this thing around now because all these talks about trades that need to be made and whatever, and that could st- start to fester here in the course of the next few weeks because we all know the all-star break is next month, and the trade deadline is probably a few days after that. So I could see something's going to be coming down the pike here as far as the trade is concerned. So you know what? Get it together, Coach Stevens. We all know that this was going to be a- an enormous year considering on the heels of what took place last year in the postseason, but now they've underachieved And they've been wildly inconsistent. So hopefully tonight they get to ship righted in Brooklyn and hopefully will set sail to a much smoother second half of the season. And just a couple of notes before I say uh, goodbye. I'm tweaking the podcast a little bit in the weeks to come, just doing uh, my own little experiment. I know a lot of it, I come from a New York perspective, and rightfully so because, of course, two of my favorite teams are from New York, the Islanders, and I didn't really get to the NHL this week, not much to report there anyway. And I'll still have a New York-centric flair, but I'm also trying to keep it open as far as just making it more from a what's happening in the world of sports over the past week or the latest news where pretty much I'm trying to take it more or less on that angle as just being so New York-heavy or New York-centric. You know, Obviously, I didn't really mention the Knicks and why I mentioned them. They've been awful all year, but you get my point, as well as a couple other things that I'm looking to do in the weeks to come. So if anybody has any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, how they would like to see the format tweaked, and I'm open to suggestions, people. You know, it's going to be a year and two months. You know, March 1st is my first show last year, and I certainly would love to get your input, feedback, whatever it may be, in reference to what you'd like to see or hear or whatever it may be. And you could do that by sending me an email at Podcast at gmail.com or any of my social media sites, whether it's Twitter at jreels1, just the number, Instagram, J Reels, and the J Reels podcast, my page on Facebook. Please feel free to do that. Uh, again, I'm more than open to hear what you have to say, and I'll also post that on my social media sites as well. And on top of that, people, the website, jreels.com, which I'm also, I've am also i been mentioning for weeks on end. I was going to tweak it, and you'll also see some things happen on the website. Nothing crazy. I actually may format it different. Who knows? But again, I'm open to anything. I would mean, just love to hear what you have to say, those who – are either avid listeners of the show or first-time listeners or just getting uh, your feet wet with my program, any type of uh, information, like I said, input feedback would certainly be welcomed. Not only that, please tell your friends, get everybody involved as far as downloading and listening to this podcast, whether it's on Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, very simple people, on any of your devices, your tablet, especially your phone. Everybody's looking at their phone all day and night. All you have to do is just hit that podcast app or wherever you get your podcast from. Type in the Jay rules podcast. Just hit subscribe. When you do that, the minute or really within the hour that the podcast is up online, you're going to get it directly to your phone. All you have to do is just download it or just listen to it on your commute home, while you're on the treadmill, while you're cooking, whatever it may be. And please, post a rating, leave a review all that's going to do is just increase the, invisibility, the visibility, I don't want invisibility, here I am trying to be silly and stupid, increase the visibility of the program online with the other sports podcasts in the universe and all that's going to do is just generate interest amongst other people out there who listen to similar podcasts and of course hopefully have more guests in the near future. So with that being said people, please continue to uh, follow on all the social media sites Send me an email, comments, etc. And this time next week, you'll get another podcast as we'll recap the championship weekend and look ahead to Super Bowl 53, as well as what's going on with the MLB Hot Stove, NHL, NBA, and all that in the world of SBRTS. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flipping.